Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Genevieve Glass. I'm a reporter here at Being Patient. And today we wanted to talk about something that affects many people living with Alzheimer's and other, dementia, and other dementias, um, dysphagia, which is otherwise known as swallowing difficulties. So as many as 22% of older adults live with dysphagia, and that number can grow to up to 40 and 50% of older adults who live in assisted care facilities. So today we wanted to bring in an expert on this topic. Her name is Nicole Rogas-Pulia. She is a speech language pathologist and an assistant professor at the medis at, of medicine, excuse me, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So let me bring her in. Hi, Nicole, can you hear me? Hello, yes, I can. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So firstly, I wanted you to explain exactly what dysphagia is and why it occurs in people with dementia. Sure, absolutely. So the term dysphagia refers broadly to the concept of swallowing dysfunction or impairment in the swallowing process. And typically when we think of swallowing, we think of the ability to move food and liquid through our mouth through our throat and down into our esophagus, which is the tube that moves from our throat to our stomach. So dysphagia or difficulty swallowing can happen at any of those points in the swallowing process. Um, the reason that we see dysphagia in persons with dementia is multi, really multifactorial. Um, it has to do with the changes that are happening in the brain with the sort of neurodegenerative process of dementia. Um, but also there are changes that happen with advancing age. So given that dementia onset is usually in older individuals, there are some changes that happen um, in the muscle function. And there are quite a few muscles that, in, that are, um, are involved in swallowing and nerves. And so just the changes related to age plus the sort of brain changes that are happening with the disease all sort of combine to contribute to the onset of dysphagia. Wow, that was a great explanation. Uh, thanks so much. So when it comes to difficulties in swallowing, whatever that may be for the individual, what, in your opinion, is the best approach to managing dysphagia? I mean, I'm sure it is incredibly individualized, um, you know, especially in terms of where a person is um, in their journey with it. So if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a little biased because I am by training a speech language pathologist and we are sort of the primary profession that manages and treats dysphagia. Um, and when I when I say that, I mean specifically dysphagia that involves the mouth and the throat. Uh, there can also be types of swallowing problems that really only impact the esophagus, in which case it would be a gastroenterologist that would be the professional. But the best first step, if you think you or a loved one are experiencing issues related to dysphagia would be to report some of those signs and symptoms to your primary care physician or the geriatrician that you're working with who can help get you connected with a speech language pathologist as kind of a first step. Um, and then from there, we, we like to do something, we like to do an evaluation that involves imaging the mouth and throat so that we can see what's actually happening while you swallow. So first we'll ask you some, some questions. We'll try to get some medical history. 
we'll try to understand what we're just observing just from talking to and working with you. But then we want to actually be able to see what's happening inside your body while you swallow. Um, and the medical term for that evaluation is the video fluoroscopic swallow study or the modified barium swallow. So that'll be our first step. And then from there, we can recommend treatments that we think are going to be most effective. Um, that's really going to be the best way to get connected with the right professional. Outside of that, there are a lot of strategies that can be used to sort of optimize swallowing function, um, even without, you know, a known dysphagia diagnosis. Um, and I can talk more about those. That would be great if you could. Okay. Yeah. So with, you know, when we are eating, it's very easy to become distracted. I think most of us like to enjoy food and drink with the people that we care about. Um, but definitely for individuals with dementia, it's really important to try to minimize distractions during mealtime. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, being in a kind of quieter environment, not having the television on, maybe soft music in the background, um, thinking carefully about the number of eating partners and the expectations during the meal. So um, are you expecting this the individual to actually converse with you? Um, trying to kind of keep conversation there for the social aspects of mealtime, but not having that be distracting. I'm sure, you know, many of of your viewers will have had the experience where you're trying to talk and swallow at the same time. And it can be really difficult to coordinate those things. So minimizing distractions as much as possible is important. Um, also thinking about positioning for the patient. So um, I think we all sort of take for granted, you know, we lay back in a chair we to relax while we're eating. Um, sometimes we, we might even be lying down. Those are not optimal positions. So as much as possible, you want uh, the patient or your loved one to be seated upright so that they can be in a really good position um, for eating and swallowing. And that will also help. Gravity also plays an important role in moving food and liquid through the mouth and throat and the esophagus. So being upright will also help to move things through the esophagus and into the stomach more effectively. Um, depending on the stage of progression, feeding techniques can also be really useful. Um, and so depending on whether the individual is able to feed themselves, um, we do try to encourage independence with feeding as much as possible. There are different types of utensils. So if, if um, the individual is struggling to get food or liquid up to the mouth, there are different kinds of utensils that can be used to facilitate that. Um, also thinking about the visual presentation of food, um, you know, if you can imagine that if you give someone, if they're on sort of a puree diet and you give them something that really looks unappetizing, you know, you say, oh, I've, you know, pureed uh, meats and you've given, give that to them in a bowl when typically that wouldn't be how they would eat meats. There can be sort of a, uh, aversion to eating that. So thinking about the way that you present things, it's visually appealing um, and also consistent with what the that individual is used to um, are all kind of important strategies. Yeah, I'm, and I'm happy you brought that up. Um, from what I've read, some people may not be interested at all in the in thickening the liquids or the foods. So I was hoping you could talk to um, us about that and what caregivers or, you know, people whose loved ones have dementia or Alzheimer's um, can do, you know, if, if that's something that their loved one is resisting. And and before before you answer that, actually, I just wanted to open it up, um, you know, feel free to ask questions, our audience, um, in the message bar, and we will go through them at the end. Great. 
So yeah, so if you could if you could talk to us about um, about that, what are some strategies that you could recommend for people who might not be interested in thickening their food? Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's a challenging one because sometimes when we do our assessments, we find that thicker consistencies are actually what's safer for swallowing. So we also have to have that conversation about, you know, what are the goals of care? Um, you may hear this term called comfort feeding, which I think has been uh, broadly misinterpreted. So it's kind of this idea that we just give individuals whatever they want to eat and drink um, without any kind of change to the consistency and that that is really kind of promoting quality of life more than modifying the diet. And that actually sometimes is not the case because the experience of being dysphagic is not a pleasant experience. Um, a lot of times people will cough and choke, clear their throat. Um, and so it's worth at least considering whether modifying liquid or the diet in some way can, can be helpful. But I, I completely understand this challenge. I have a lot of patients who are really aversive to the idea of thickening liquids. Um, there are, there have been some protocols developed that I think are interesting. The literature, the research around these protocols is still very limited. Um, so I will say just with that caveat, um, but they're called free water protocols. So this is where um, during a meal, the patient would consume thickened liquid um, along with the food that they're eating. But then in between meals, in order to encourage increased amounts of water intake and hydration, the patient would be able to take water but the key with this is that you would perform thorough oral care, which means brushing the teeth, cleaning the tongue, um, having the patient rinse any debris from the mouth before taking water. And it would be sterile water. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that even if this individual is what we call aspirating, so material is moving into the lungs, that that material is not laced with pathogenic bacteria, which is what's mm -hmm. most likely to lead to the consequence of pneumonia. Um, so this is certainly a pro an approach to talk to your doctor about um, and the speech language pathologist, because it's something that has been used. Um, the research in terms of whether individuals who use that approach are less likely to get pneumonia or have negative outcomes is still not clear, um, but it's certainly something that can be considered. Oh, definitely on the lookout for that. That's a great suggestion. And can you talk about why exactly aspiration occurs? Yeah. So um, when you develop dysphagia, well, when you swallow normally, there are a lot of different events that have to be coordinated during the swallow. And one of the most important things that needs to happen is that you actually have to close your airway in the middle of the swallow. Um, and so you can imagine that people who have respiratory challenges where breathing you know, is, is, is a concern, even closing the airway for a very short amount of time to swallow can be really challenging. Um, and so what ends up happening when someone has dysphagia is that those events are not well coordinated. So you, you move the material through the mouth into the throat and maybe the airway doesn't close in time so it stays open or the muscles that are responsible for closing the airway are weak. Um, and so they're not actually able to close it effectively. And so instead of the material staying out of the airway and going into the esophagus towards the stomach, some of, some of that material will sneak into the airway. And that's what we call aspiration. Right. Um, when that happens, it moves down into the lungs. And then once it sits there, um, the body often can have trouble breaking it down and that can lead to an infectious process like pneumonia. Got it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for explaining that. Cause that is obviously something, the, the worst case scenario um, for anyone really. So thanks for explaining that. 
in a lot of your research, you talk, you kind of advocate for a proactive rather than a reactive approach when it comes to dysphagia. So with that in mind, what are your recommendations for preventative measures? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I mean, I think this is such an important um, area for clinical practice and for research. Um, unfortunately, our current sort of paradigm of care in this in this area is that the speech language pathologist will come in once the disease has progressed pretty far. Um, and there are some real challenges with swallowing. And now we're sort of in a position where we have to be what I call reactive in the way that we approach therapy. So we have dysphagias already developed and we're trying to come up with a therapy plan. And oftentimes there, there can be, um, you know, some pretty significant cognitive issues that make it harder to participate in therapies. So moving towards a more proactive approach means being aware of the signs and symptoms of dysphagia early, talking about them with your care provider. So just being, even if those signs and symptoms aren't there yet, just understanding that dysphagia is part of this degenerative process for many patients. Um, and so even if it hasn't developed yet, it may start to develop down the line. And so having questions around these issues we've already talked about to some extent around goals of care. Like if I develop dysphagia, what kinds of therapies would I want? Would I consider at some points having a feeding tube place? Um, but what's nice about getting having these early discussions and getting connected with a speech language pathologist is that we can actually do some treatments um, that we call sort of rehabilitation. So you don't have dysphagia yet, but we know the muscles and the neural control that's important for swallowing. And so we can actually do some exercises that optimize, swallow, like build the yeah. function of those muscles so that if you do start to develop some degeneration in the areas of the brain that control swallowing or weakness in the muscles, we've now built your what we call reserve. So that right. you can actually tolerate a little bit more change and still not become dysphagic. That's yeah. I mean, and I think I think with 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 any disease, really being proactive as opposed to reactive is the key. Um, and then going off of that, does exercise and strength training play a role in this at all? Yeah, so it's interesting because in Western culture, we often don't focus much on the exercise of the muscles of the head and neck. We focus more on the limbs. Um, but there are exercises that can be done to build the strength of the head and neck musculature. Um, one of the treatment approaches that I'm studying in a, in a currently funded clinical trial is systematic strengthening of the tongue. So we actually have a, a device that we use. It's an air-filled pressure bulb that goes on the tongue and individuals push with their tongue against the roof of their mouth. And we're able to systematically strengthen the tongue over an eight week time frame. So we've got, that's just one example. We have a lot of different exercises that we've developed for the tongue and for the other muscles in the throat that we use to swallow. And so you can actually proactively build the strength of those muscles um, before you actually have any, any issues with swallowing. That's, yeah, I mean, I think that that was something that I found really interesting in researching your work. So I'm happy that you spoke on that a little bit. Um, forgive my pronunciation, but we have a couple of questions. Um, one, Kathy Lynn Pink, thank you for submitting. She says she has strogens, um, numerous autoimmune GI issues, and she is choking with every meal. So she wanted to know if there's any exercises that she can do to strengthen those throat muscles. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that question, Kathy. I actually have some familiarity with Sjogren's disease because I, I performed some research early on in my career looking at dysphagia um, in, in patients with Sjogren's. Um, one of the challenges with Sjogren's syndrome is that you, you have dry mouth. Um, so changes in, in saliva production can also play a role. Um, I don't know if you've seen a speech language pathologist, but I would recommend that as the first line because um, we have to be careful, just like if you were to go to a physical therapist, they wouldn't say, oh, here, just do you know any exercise. We would want to first actually evaluate your swallowing using that x-ray test that I mentioned so we can see what are the areas of impairment that you have? And then based on that, yeah, there are some exercises that we can recommend. Um, just from my research with this kind of area in the past, I know that um, the base of tongue, which is a part of the tongue in your throat, often becomes weak um, with Sjogren's syndrome. And so there are some exercises. One is called a hard swallow or effortful swallow, where you just swallow while squeezing the muscles of your mouth and throat. Um, and that can help to increase the strength of your base of tongue. So there are other exercises that can be helpful as well. But I would recommend getting a thorough evaluation of your swallowing um, first before you start doing anything because you don't, it could actually be counterproductive. Hmm. Interesting. So it seems like the first first line of defense is to really go to a speech language pathologist yes. and kind of get your baseline and understand what you're really working with. Exactly. So let's go through another a couple other of these questions here. Uh, one from Nancy Tovar. She says, "My father will hold his mouth, his food in his mouth, and chew for seriously two hours or more. We struggle feeding him solid food because he does not want to swallow, just chew. We are mainly blending his food using broth, and he will swallow that better." He is coughing now while eating and it's concerning. He is a great eater and will complete his whole meal if it is soup-like. Is there any way we can get him to swallow his food or take the food out of his mouth easily? He won't let us remove it. Oh my gosh, yes. I <laughs> I can really relate to this comment, Nancy. This is something that I see clinically quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure whether you're open to getting an evaluation. I think the thing that stands out to me the most is the report of coughing um, because coughing, choking, uh, clearing the throat, uh, gurgly noise on the voice, those can all be signs that somebody is actually aspirating. So it may even beyond him holding the food and chewing for a long period of time, he may be actually starting to get some material into the lungs when he swallows. Um, so it might be good to get that evaluation and kind of understand exactly what's going on with the swallow. Um, some things that I found that have been helpful um, to kind of get what we call the oral phase, which is the period of time during the swallow when you're chewing, you're holding the material in your mouth and moving it into your throat, to kind of get that phase moving a little quicker is to think about whether there are ways you could increase the flavor of the food that you're giving. So if there's a particular flavor that that your father enjoys, it might seem actually like really unappetizing to you to make something so, so sweet or so, so salty. But sometimes taste can, that sensation can decline as well as the sense of smell, which is related to taste with the degeneration of the disease. And so really increasing the sensory input around food can be really helpful in kind of getting things going a little quicker. Um, that's one one suggestion. Um, and then, you know, I think it it may be worthwhile to think about whether moving to something that doesn't require as involved chewing, you know, from a, what you're presenting may start to become necessary. Um, there are some types of foods where 
you are still chewing. So we also want to encourage still using the muscles for chewing because when you don't use a certain set of muscles, they become deconditioned. Um, so, you know, you want to keep keep your father chewing, but also think about whether there are things that are softer and easier to chew that maybe wouldn't take him as long to break down. Um, just some ideas. But I think an evaluation of swallowing, especially given the symptom of coughing, would probably be a good idea at this point. Yeah, that's great advice. And also, uh, you know, recommending that you amplify the flavor. I think even if it's, I think you said really resonating, at least with me, that even if it's unappetizing to you, um, yeah. that it could be helpful for them. So thank you for sharing that. Um, another one from Heather Lynn Lynn. Uh, she asks, what suggestions do you have for people with dysphagia swallowing medication? Oh, yeah, this is also a common, not just for um, individuals with dementia, but really all of our patients with dysphagia have this challenge. Um, there are a couple strategies. So I realize it can be hard to crush pills. Um, that's certainly an option to crush and put in applesauce. But one of the things that we do pretty regularly with our patients is we'll actually just take a pill whole and put embed it within what we call a puree. So something like applesauce or pudding, by putting the pill inside the applesauce, you don't have to necessarily crush it. The, the individual will often just swallow the applesauce kind of along with the pill. So one of the things that can be most challenging about swallowing pills is not actually always the pill itself, but the water that you have to drink. So in order to get the pill down, you actually have to take a pretty large volume of water. Um, and that can be, if you already have some changes in your swallowing, that can lead to discomfort, aspiration of the liquid actually, and not the pill. Um, so this is a way to sort of facilitate swallowing the pill without having to take a large volume of liquid. Um, so that's something that we, we've used, uh, we use with our patients quite a bit. Not another another great suggestion. And why why exactly is water so difficult to swallow? Why yeah. is it irritating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, due to the areas of the brain that are sort of involved in the control of swallow that are affected in the dementia process, one of the things that we see happen in the swallow is that things get a little bit slower. So as the material moves over into the throat. Like I said, the airway has to close, the esophagus has to open, and sometimes that just doesn't happen fast enough. So if you think about a cup of water pouring it out on a table versus a cup of maybe like a milkshake, yeah. you'll notice that the water goes everywhere and it moves really quickly. That's the same thing in the throat. So oftentimes the water's just moving too quickly and people can't accommodate that because of some of these changes in the brain. Um, so by taking something a little thicker, you know, or not having to take as large of a volume of water, you know, having smaller single sips of water instead of, you know, having to drink sequentially, that can um, make it easier to drink. And does the temperature of foods or drinks matter? Is it easier to swallow warm than cold? I'm just curious. Yeah, we the, the research on that is still a little bit unclear. There are some studies that show cold can actually be very helpful um, so that it can increase the sensory stimulation for swallowing and help swallowing to happen a little bit quicker. Um, but it's still highly variable depending on the study. Um, and there's not really like a threshold that, you know, where you have to be this cold or, you know, that it's effective. Yeah. So at this point, it doesn't seem to be directly related, um, but hopefully in the future, we'll understand a little more about that. Cool. Um, we got another question here from Queenie LaCabin. She asks, uh, what are your thoughts on tube feeding? 
Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, I think it depends on the goals of tube feeding. I think it also depends on the stage of the disease progression. Um, so I would say for individuals that are in more advanced phases, it, from my perspective, it's really not indicated. Um, and the reason for that, there have been some large studies that have looked at individuals with advanced dementia who've had feeding tubes placed. There doesn't seem to be much of a benefit in terms of time to, mor to mortality. Um, and there also are a lot of really negative outcomes of tube feeding. Um, these include pressure ulcers, um, wound, poor wound healing, hospital admission. Um, so those negative outcomes. And then the other thing to understand about tube feeding is people often think, okay, well, if, if my loved one has the feeding tube in place, that means that they're no longer at risk for aspiration because they're not eating and drinking, but that's actually not true. Um, we all can still, we will aspirate our saliva um, if we're dysphagic throughout the day. So every time you swallow your saliva, some of that will go in the lungs and there can be pathogenic bacteria in the mouth that then is carried down to the lungs with saliva. So you can still develop pneumonia just from aspirating your saliva. Um, and also by having the feeding tube in place, the individual is at greater risk for what we call reflux, which is where material comes from the stomach up into the throat. And then that can be aspirated and that can lead to a condition called pneumonitis. So by having the feeding tube in place, you don't necessarily you know, eliminate the risk of pneumonia. And then you also have all of these other sort of negative outcomes. So especially in advanced stage, I'd say no. Um, in the earlier phases, though, there can be a role for feeding tube placement, especially if the goal is more temporary. So if you have someone who, you know, maybe has just gone through a hospital admission, is really deconditioned, and is trying to build strength, and maybe they just need that supplemental nutrition for a shorter period of time, it could be it could be indicated and helpful, um, but in the later stages, it unfortunately doesn't really eliminate the issues related to dysphagia. So, what do you think the incentive is then? Just that it's, it's seemingly easier and making sure that they have their nutrients. I think that the view is it's easier. I think it's also. I can say this from personal experience. It's also very challenging to think that your loved one isn't getting enough nutrition. And so it seems like, you know, by putting the feeding tube in place, at least we know they're getting the nutrition that they need. Um, but those those desires do have to be kind of balanced with these really serious risks of negative outcomes that can impact quality of life even more. Um, and I do think that there are other ways to increase nutritional intake besides placing the feeding tube that are kind of within this realm of what we think of as comfort feeding. Uh, yeah, totally. That makes sense. Um, we have another question here from Marsha Rebecca Eno. She asks, uh, does dysphagia affect burping? Hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, certainly if when an individual is swallowing, they tend to be swallowing more air that can increase the frequency of burping. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily a direct relationship there. Um, where I think there would be more of a relationship would be if the dysphagia or difficulty swallowing is more located to the esophagus. 
So um, what I mean by that is once the food gets through your throat and into your esophagus, there can be issues with how the esophagus contracts to move the food down to the stomach. And so if that isn't coordinated or isn't working well, you can have a lot of um, air buildup and food and liquid buildup in the esophagus that can lead to more burping. Um, so it would be worth definitely getting an assessment to see you know, whether there's an issue in the mouth and throat, what we call oropharyngeal dysphagia, or if it could be something a little bit lower down, if that's a really frequent occurrence. And kind of going off of that, are there any other warning signs for dysphagia that you can pinpoint um, yeah. at very early stages so that people can be aware? Yeah. Yeah. So what we know about um, the onset of dysphagia in the early stages of dementia is that it often doesn't manifest in things like coughing or choking, like the more severe symptoms. Sometimes it's more subtle. Um, so things like just clearing the throat during meals, something that a lot of us wouldn't necessarily even pay attention to, but just sort of a subtle throat clear, like, <clears throat> you know, throughout a meal can indicate that there's just a little bit of sensation that something might be going down the wrong way. Um, also, a change in voice quality um, is another way to pick up. So if you hear during meals or after meals, sort of a wet, gurgly quality to the voice, that can be, or even just a change, if you can't pinpoint, you know, how the voice sounds different, but it, you just know it sounds different. That can be a sign that something's gone into the airway and material's actually sitting on the vocal folds. Um, another common uh, symptom in early phase dementia could be aversion to eating. So just like disinterest, which is hard because there are also changes in appetite right. that happen as part of disease progression. But some of that aversion or desire not to eat could be because it's not comfortable mm -hmm. for the patient. Um, taking a lot longer to eat, so longer meal durations. Um, yeah, an avoidance of, I would say avoidance of certain types of foods mm -hmm. that maybe they've enjoyed, the individuals enjoyed before and now they're like, mm, I think I'm gonna not you know, try a piece of celery, things like that. Got it, cool. Um, and then another question I had, you talked a little bit about posture. So can you explain the chin down method and anything else that you'd recommend um, as kind of a simple way for people to align themselves um, posturally? Yeah, yeah, so I feel like I'm a broken record with this, but I will say um, the evaluation, the x-ray study is so important because we do often recommend a chin tuck posture, but we also know that it can be it can be counterproductive for some patients. I've seen patients where it actually results in an increase in aspiration versus the opposite. But the general idea to using a, ch a chin tuck posture is that you take your chin and you move it all the way down to your chest. So the key is that it can't just be halfway, it's gotta be all the way down to the chest. And then you need to maintain the chin down to the chest during the entire swallow. So you have to be careful not to lift your head up too early because then you're still swallowing and now your head is up. So it's keeping the chin down all through the entire swallow. Um, and the reason that we think it works is in many cases is that it moves the part of the tongue that's in the throat closer to the back of the throat. So it allows the tongue to create more pressure on whatever's being swallowed. And then it also narrows the entrance to the airway. So even if something wants to go towards the airway, that opening is a little bit smaller. And so it's it's more able to avoid. Um, there was a large clinical trial it, for uh, individuals with 
dement Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's related dementia that looked at the efficacy of the chin tuck posture and actually found it to be somewhat effective at reducing the occurrence of aspiration. But again, it depends on the individual patient and the reason that aspiration is happening. So we have to kind of, we have to get to the bottom of that. But during that x-ray study, we'll trial things like a chin tuck posture, sometimes turning the head side to side, looking over the shoulder can be helpful as well because it closes off the um, weak side of the throat if one side's weaker than the other. So there are a lot of different things we can try in that exam. And then we can see, did it actually work? And yeah. then we can make a recommendation from there. And even if it was something that did look to be beneficial after doing that scan, how how do you get someone to do that in every swallow? You know, and is yeah. it something that um, they need to constantly be coached by a loved one or a caregiver? Because I mean, I'm thinking about me even remembering to do that every time I swallow, at least when I'm swallowing food would be really difficult. Yeah, it's really challenging. We often will have follow-up swallow therapy sessions where we do, we try to use some approaches that have been used in other areas um, of memory, like memory facilitation techniques, something called spaced retrieval, where we will you know, present things multiple times and try to help the patient learn that way. Another really useful technique I found with a lot of my patients is um, a visual cue. So for some people, it could be just the printed words of like tuck your chin, but yeah. sometimes reading can be impaired. So a picture of someone with the chin down in the place where they most commonly eat um, can be helpful. But honestly, the most helpful thing is having a caregiver who's engaged and can, you know, kind of be there to keep keep the reminders going. But yeah, having visual cues can also be helpful. And it is something that we can train more uh, within therapy as well. And, and, and lastly, uh, just kind of talking about other good habits that people yeah. can maintain, you know, is there is there a certain time between after eating that they shouldn't lie down for? Are there other things that you can recommend um, or kind of just shoot off at the end of this? Just, yeah. just so people can think about that when they are eating with their loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the things we've talked about, posture, um, minimizing distractions can be really great. Some other techniques that we'll often recommend to patients for what we call safe swallowing would be alternating liquids and solids. Um, so some, like even for the individual who's asking about uh, her father, I think who is having prolonged chewing, yeah. sometimes even just introducing like, a bite of food, a sip of liquid, like that alternating process can help to move things through the throat a little bit easier. Smaller bites, single sips of liquid instead of taking, you know, huge volumes at once. Those are those are useful. Um, definitely staying upright. We usually say 30 to 60 minutes after a meal um, because it will help that material. Again, it will use help to use gravity to help move the material right. through through the esophagus. Um, I think those would probably be some of the main recommendations. And then just within the space of thinking about how things are presented to the patient visually, um, thinking about whether taste can be enhanced, smell can be enhanced, those kinds of things. But I know that that can take a lot of work to, to think through all of that. But sometimes those other aspects about the presentation of the food can also help as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. Was there anything else that you feel like I've missed that you would like to share? No, no, just thank you so much for having me. It's it's really uh, an honor to be here. And I, I hope it's helpful. And if anyone has other questions, I'm, I'm always happy to address them. 
Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been really wonderful hearing all about this and I think uh, incredibly helpful. So appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Bye.